Hello and welcome to episode five of the UATX podcast, Forbidden Conversations, where we talk with many of our fascinating guests who are part of the Polaris Fellowship. I'm honored today to have as my guest our first international and our first female speaker, Carmen Rodriguez, who's joining us from Guatemala City. She has an excellent background in education, um, in which we hope to dive into, as well as some roots in the libertarian movement, which I find interesting. And we actually have a shared connection with Peter Cooper, who is a interesting person on a number of dimensions. So without further um, ado, please welcome Carmen Rodriguez. Thank you, Harry. I'm happy to be here. I'm thrilled to have you as well. I mean, you've obviously listened to the podcast before, um, you know, the deal. I just love to sort of get to know a little bit about uh, who Mr. Rodriguez is, and what it was like growing up in Guatemala, you know, through the 90s, the 2000s and, um, and the modern era. So kick us off. What's it like being a kid in Guatemala and how would it be, say it's different to someone who grew up in the United States? Right. I guess it depends on where you grew up. And I guess that also applies to America as well. But in Guatemala, I grew up in the I grew up in the coast, which is two hours away from the city. And it was like the small town kind of life, really. Um, yep. And yeah, it was very calm. Like there, there were no there were no bars or there were no we didn't even have a movie theater first. We didn't have that many options for restaurants. So for entertainment, I would often just go to the pool or run or go to farms. Um, <laughs> that was what it looked like. And the city wasn't far away and other cities weren't that far from there. So also driving to other places. But uh, it was very different from my friends who grew up in the city. And mm. I would say that when they were in high school, they had a lot of parties and it was way different and not as chill as my upbringing, I would say. So, I mean, for those who aren't, who haven't been to Guatemala, and I'm one of them, uh, we know that it's not as wealthy as other countries in the West. But, I mean, we've spoken to, like, John in the past, and he says he's always amazed, you know, when he tells people he's from Kenya. And people are like, have you ever seen a car before? And he doesn't. He's like, well, of course, you know. Uh, but, like, put some more color on it. Like, I mean, what was life like as a young girl? You know, mm-hmm. did you have a car? I did, I did. <laughs> yeah, I guess I was on the good side of things. <laughs> and it's yeah. not like that for everyone in Guatemala. But um, yeah, when I, I grew up in the coast, but uh, my parents were, both of them are business people and they were doing pretty well. And I went to the American school. That's another thing that's different in Guatemala, I guess. And most of the schools here I are private. So we have a lot of low-cost private schools. Interesting. Um, so anyone who can afford it sends their kids to private school. And it's because public schools are really bad. And since I studied education, I visited many of the public schools around the country. And many of them, in their textbooks, they have things about how people in Congress are like this great people or our president is so great and it's none of it is true um and they don't have computers i don't know it's it's really sad and also they still like hit children so there's a lot of like corporeal punishment in public schools which is so crazy to me that was one of the most shocking things to me for me to see uh but yeah so private schools here can cost anywhere between I would say 
maybe $10 a month to, I don't know, like private schools in America. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's a wide range of schools in terms of that. But, mm-hmm. and the other thing is, yeah, I guess some of my friends who went to public school in America say that at public school, they would mix up with different people from different like social standings or status. Mm. I don't think that happens as much in Guatemala, especially in the city. So my friends who grew up in the city went to these private schools that were really nice schools. And then they would never see people from other schools that were from the $10 a month schools. They would never interact and you would never be friends or talk to and you don't live in the same areas as those people. So you wouldn't interact with, with them as much. But for me, growing up in the coast, I went to a nice school. And maybe at the school, I didn't interact with different kinds of people. But I also, I was always in, into sports. So I played basketball or soccer. And whenever I did that, I would play with people from other schools or from other parts of town. Um, and yeah, so I was always surrounded by different kinds of people. And that's not necessarily something that would have happened if I had grown up in the city. I feel that like the United States is almost unique in that it has that massive mixing effect in public schools like i didn't go to public school i'm in america but i have watched a lot of tv shows and um, this is right from say on the podcast america's biggest export is not shale gas it's not oil it's it is it's culture it's 100 culture and i think what america has unique is that they have their schools are huge i was listening to this podcast a little while about stuyvesant school in new york city um on the daily and they were talking about you know they were like, we have 800 students here. I'm like, oh, 800 is a big school. And they're like, no, per year level. And I was like, this must be like an empire that they're running out here. Um, so very large schools, a big mix. You always hear about like the rich kids coming in and they're like uh, Mercedes and whatnot. Um, and I think it is many Americans possibly don't realize just because they don't have the same amount of culture inflows as they have outflows. It's so different in other parts of the, uh, other parts of the world. Um, before we go on, let's look at with the, like the family and growing up a little bit. Your family, big family, small family, both parents are. So my mom has eight siblings, so big family from my mom's side, and from my dad's side, he's an only child, so I don't have oh, wow. cousins from the Rodriguez part of the family. <laughs> Brothers and sisters. I have one younger sister. Interesting, and yes. I like people are. Uh, and this is a sort of like I'm, I don't really get on into like the genealogy and ancestry, but one thing I wonder is like, does your if you trace your family back, do they go back to like Spain, or do they go back to like, are you like Incan? Yeah, that's so the right here in, in Guatemala, it's yeah. it's the Mayans. Okay. Yes, and that's that's another thing that's different, I guess. That if anyone who has done their twenty three and me. All of my yeah. friends who are Guatemalan and have done it, they have all the map colored. Basically, you have genes, or I guess, ancestry everywhere. Yeah. And that's the case for me as well, although mostly Spain, yeah. a little bit of Portugal as well. Like I, That's one of the big ones. But then there's all kinds of random stuff over there. And then for my friends, for my American friends, many of them, when they show me they're 23 and me, it's like, I don't know, like 95% uh, the UK basically, and yeah. maybe they're five percent something else, a little German. Um, I don't know. 
my my parents are very skeptical about 23andme but i think it's pretty accurate <laughs> well i mean i did it and it was 99.7 percent western european like i don't think my family went they they obviously uh there wasn't tinder back in the day but it's i think they've got it sort of focused down to the street level um on my side and uh my wife uh <laughs> I think it, the thing with 23andMe is that it relies heavily on more data points. Um, so if you're Western European, you get far more, far more uh, granularity. Um, and my wife's mother, she's from Singapore um, and Han Chinese ethnically. And so she has on her, and her father's from Liverpool. So on the father's side, it's like, oh, you're like 7% German and like 15% Swedish. And then it's like, and you're also 50% Asian. And she's like, oh, great. <laughs> like, exactly. I didn't, yeah, need, I didn't need to test for that. It's definitely more accurate for Europe, I would say. Yeah. It's uh, pretty and be- accurate. And before we could dive back into, you know, your love growing up, I mean, I just know so little about Central America. Like I like I understand why people came from Europe to Australia, but why did the Spanish people why did Spanish people come to Guatemala and Central Europe? Mm-hmm. Or Central Central America, I should say. Yeah, so mostly it was people from the northern part of Spain who came here. People from the south were the south of Spain were wealthier. People from the north of Spain were not necessarily as wealthy. And they came to Guatemala to look for opportunity to start businesses or to, I don't know, just get away from Spain. Yeah, um, yeah so more of this spirit of explorers too. Um, yeah, but I wish that we, were, we had been conquered by the British instead of the Spanish. And why is that? <laughs> I think the British have better systems than the Spanish for sure. Um, or the French for that matter. <laughs> but Yeah, I, um, I remember doing a course years ago at grad school and like one of the, there are some, you know, classic questions like philosophy, like my, the only one I think is really important is how should we spend our time? But one of the big questions in economics is why are some countries rich and why are some countries poor? And over the class, we sort of explored like the whole history of like why people thought. And it starts out like, as you can imagine, like the 16th century, just like an entirely racially based. It's like, oh, all the white people seem to be developed. And like, we'll just, it's obviously that. That's the only thing that matters. And then over time, we've learned more. There's a big thing for a while about being close, no, being far away from the equator. That was a big thing that was deemed very important. I think the idea was that if you live in Sweden, you have to spend more time like preparing for winter. Whereas if you live in like Jamaica, you want some food, you just grab it from a tree. <laughs> like It's just exactly. such a bountiful part of the world. Um, but the idea that everyone sort of just jumped around now, and it makes the most sense to me, it's all a concept of institutions. And if right. you adopt the right institutions, um, then because... The institutions you had yesterday are normally the institutions you have today. If you right. get the right ones, it really, really, really helps. Um, and so, as you probably alluded to, with when you have the British takeover, one thing that they, the big thing is the British common law. I'm not a lawyer. We've got many people on the our podcast, so hit that subscribe button. Um, <laughs> is how, how important it is as compared to potentially like the Spanish version of law, the French version of law. Um, and you just see the differences between how how that's worked out. Um, it's not a slam dunk. There's obviously plenty of countries that 
I think there's, what, 13 countries in the world that the British have not conquered or invaded at some point in their history. Mm. Not everyone has had the same benefits, but uh, institutions mm. sure do matter. And fortunately, we're both part of a great institution at the moment with uh, UATX. Uh, so you, you live on the coast, you're growing up, going to the farm, running, uh, and then you decide, You, I guess everyone hits around like 17, 18, and they decide that they need to make some, start making decisions about their, their future. And maybe you can right. sort of think about what were, what were you starting to think about in terms of your future and how closely aligned is it to what you're doing today? Yeah. So when I was in high school and through all of grade school, basically, I, I often say I was an excellent sheep. Like I would do everything I was told to do. I would go to school. I always, always went to the same school. That's something, that's another thing that's different here. Mm. Usually you go to the same, like where I went for pre-K, that's where I graduated from high school. So it's not like, mm. It's high school, you go to a different school. So basically, I went to a school with like 300 people, pretty small private school. And um, I was a good student. I, I was always doing sports and was very good at that too. And enjoyed, enjoyed that, enjoyed reading books. Uh, but I never really made any choices for myself. Like, And the first time I had to make a real big choice was when I was graduating from high school and I had to decide where to go to school and what to study. So that was the first time when I had to choose. And my my goal was to go to Canada because I at the time I was very socialist and I didn't want to study in the US. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, okay, Canada sounds great. <laughs> and uh, I had a, an extra semester before I could do that. Yeah. And, I decided to join UFM, which is this University of Free Market. It's not really what it stands for. It's Universidad Francisco Marroquín. That's what the initials UFM yep. stand for. And um, it's a university in Guatemala City. And I thought I'm just going to be here for a semester while I wait till I can move to Canada. And I ended up really enjoying it and staying here instead. Yep. But um Really, what made me realize that I was an excellent sheep was this class I had during my freshman year of college, and it was called the Freshman Experience. And during the first day of class, uh, we had the teacher, like, say the class started at 9 a.m., yeah. and everyone was in the class, and we had just had a big soccer game the weekend before, and everyone was talking about the soccer game or the party or whatever else, other stuff, not about the class. And then when it was like 9.40, 40 minutes into class, one of my classmates stood up and said, oh, when does class start? Like, aren't we supposed to have started already? Yeah. And then the teacher showed us this quote by John Taylor Gatto that says, as a public school teacher, I teach the lesson of dependency. Good people wait to be told what to do because they don't know any other way or something like that. It's not the exact quote. I can look it up. But I was so shocked because I was like, whoa, I really just go from one class to another. And then I just wait for the teachers to tell me what to do. And then I do that. And I don't really think about why I'm doing it or why I'm doing one thing instead of the other. So that was a big shocker for me. And then the, a new program was starting at the university and it's called the Michael Polanyi College and it's a liberal arts program. And all of our classes were seminar-based and project-based, so I really liked that system, and that's why I decided to stay in Guatemala, because I really loved learning and taking more responsibility for my education instead of just passively sitting in a class, listening to lectures, being able to be more active in deciding what I wanted to do and why, and 
really thinking about what my values were and how the ideas that I was reading and studying fitted into my worldview. It's so interesting you say that because I don't, I, don't, I only know you a little bit, Carmen, but you don't strike me as a sheep and you don't strike me as someone who doesn't take control of their own life. So right. I mean, that doesn't happen overnight or maybe it does. Maybe you get a... I mean, uh, I was always kind of rebellious. I was always very curious and I always loved learning about everything. So I enjoyed class, but yeah, I was always a little rebellious, I would say. But in the sense of choosing where to study and yeah, I, I think I never really made any big choices besides what sport I wanted to do next. Yeah. So, so, so talk, us through that, talk us through that change. Is this a gradual change or are there like some big moments along the way where you're like, okay, I've gone from the sheep to the lion. Mm-hmm. Actually, I was a teacher at a school and I know some that some children are definitely more chill and more prone to be sheep. And I was, I'm sure I'm not, I was not one of those kids. I was always a troublemaker. <laughs> but yeah, I guess getting bad feed, getting negative feedback from doing things that I wasn't not supposed to do. Yeah. Maybe. Like I remember when I was in first grade and, uh, we were just learning how to read and, and write. And I had an exam, I read an exam and I continued writing on the next page. And I think I got half the grade because I didn't answer the question supposedly, but I had on the next page. And the teacher said something like, oh yeah, but you didn't follow the instructions. Things like that. I mean, it's not like I was a complete sheep, but I became used to following instructions more, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's such an interesting way to sort of think of it like people, I mean, people talk about like sheep and stuff, and it's got so much of a conspiratorial bent to it. But I would definitely say that there are some people who are, I mean, is it a nature versus, would you say it's a nature versus nurture thing? Do you, I mean, we, it's like, we kind of think that there are some groups of yeah. people, some countries um, who are more conformist than others. Um and do we need sheep? Mm-hmm. There's definitely both. It's definitely both nature and nurture. But when I was teaching at this school, I would always think, oh, if somebody has more of like a follower attitude, you definitely want to encourage them to make choices and to take responsibility for their lives. I think that if we want to live in a free society, we really need for people to take more responsibility for their lives, uh, ideally. So, And I think everyone can do it, though. Um, no matter what their nature, quote unquote, is, I think they can, everyone can learn how to take more responsibility and less of this victim mentality, which I think really is so damaging for society. How so? Like now you always hear of people who say, okay, I have ADHD and another one who says, oh, I have this other uh, problem, learning problem and another person saying they have whatever something that makes them a victim Mm. in comparison to other people instead of saying despite this thing that i have i'm accomplishing my goals in another way and that's fine um everyone can accomplish their goals in a different way and everyone has different goals but it's important for them to feel like they have control over their life's outcomes instead of thinking oh i'm a victim of my situation and um which I think is a problem that people nowadays have. And it also happens with college admissions, right? Where people are like, oh, you know, I'm, 
Latinx or whatever first generation student and yeah. the more checks bo check boxes you can check off the better you are oh yeah like i'm also gay or trans or whatever gives you extra cookie points i don't think that's good <laughs> i mean it's interesting you bring that because like i think any any sane person could recognize that some people have more advantages than others um i mean you, you just have to walk down the street to sort of recognize that right. uh, but it's interesting that you know i mean how would I phrase this? That you feel that, that people, I mean, let's, let's, let's bring it to the, the forefront. You feel like you're a fem you're a woman and you're Latinx. As <laughs> we love to say the Nobody says that here, by the way. I always joke about that. Latinx. Uh, <laughs> I think it's funny as well. Um, but when you, as you move through the world, I mean, how much of that do you feel? Do you, is it, like a mindset or is it some things where you feel that you have been a um it's a hurdle that society should work towards like removing i feel very grateful to be a woman in this century um i always joke whenever i'm studying or reading about the history of guatemala and people often idealize the how the mayans lived in the jungle or sometimes even indigenous communities and I say, oh, I'm so grateful I was born <laughs> in this century because if I had been a woman a thousand years ago, even, yeah. then I wouldn't have had nearly half the rights I have today. And even in Guatemala, I think like 60 years ago, women were not able to have bank accounts. Um, yeah. So I think this is the best time to be alive and it's the best time to be a woman. <laughs> And also for the Mayans, the other crazy thing, though, is they had no social mobility. If you were the son or daughter of a priest, then you were going to become a priest yourself. And you were ranked high in the hierarchical status or whatever. And if you yeah. were if you were not, then you had no options. <laughs> no. And it's definitely, I mean, it's, I mean, all you've said is common sense. Like, nobody could argue that, like, some people... I, it happens in Australia as well. People really romanticize, you know, living on the land and living like an indigenous lifestyle. But what they see is like so disconnected from what the reality would have been like. Exactly. Um, I mean, we even see, I mean, the one I, I mean, we, we even still romanticize modern day life. I remember um, one of my favorite quotes, uh, favorite stories. I'm a big fan of Michael Schellenberg. I know that a few people in the program are as well. Uh, and he, much like you, Carmen, when he was a younger guy, uh, was a wannabe socialist. And he took some time off from, American guy, took, took some time off from, I think he's at UCLA, and decides to go to Nicaragua to help the, is it the Sandinistas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he, he signs up to become like a revolutionary. Wow. Um, and, but like, you know, he still brings this, like with his Nikes as well. Like, so <laughs> he's a, uh, he's a, he's a rich, uh, Revolutionaries. He, he, he becomes. A, um, he decides to put his money where his mouth is, which you know you can't have a crack at a bloke having a crack. Goes to Nicaragua and goes into the uh, forests and joins all these people and decides that he's going to become a, a Marxist revolutionary. And all these Nicaraguans are like, "Oh, dude, where do you come from?" He's like, "I've just come from the city." And they're like, "Dude, you need to help me get there." And they're like, "Oh, what do you want to do in the city? Like, you know, attack some of these like fascists?" It's like, "Nah, 
we want, we want to go to the Nike factory. And they're like, why do you want to go to the Nike factory to like burn it down? It's like, no, we want to work there. They're like, no, 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 no. I've come from America. I can tell you, you guys are living the dream out here farming. You don't want to go work for Nike. You want to stay here on the farm. And these guys are like, oh, really? Let's go farming then. And so many people have this idea of farming. It's like old McDonald had a, you know, had farm. a farm with like a quack quack here and an awkward there. You know, it's all like patting the animals and stuff. You know what it's like in Central America? It's very hot. It's very humid. And you have no tools whatsoever. So these guys are essentially just digging up ditches with the, and he's like, by like 9.30 in the morning on day one, he's like, I was about to pass out. And he's like, we just do this all day long. And, you know, going from here to the Nike factory isn't capitalist propaganda. This is a chance for us to work like five days a week instead of seven and then work in like double oil incomes and not have to be like eaten by snakes or like attacked by animals or like die from exhaustion by the age of 25. And I think about that quite frequently when I hear all these stories about people who romanticize um, certain living. Even people who romanticize like Yellowstone and becoming a cowboy out of Montana, I think is quite disconnected from um, everyday life and that we should see, endeavor to try and see things more realistically and seek truth, which is perhaps why we're here at UATX. Um, okay, so you're at university and you decide that education is going to be the path that pulls you. Let's go through that. Yeah. So I decided that it's going to be education because I had this transformative process where I really felt like I was learning and in charge of my own education for the first time. And I could see that my classmates were too. And I decided to research more and look into ways in which children learn. What are some other ways? So I learned about Montessori education, Reggio Emilia, and Acton Academy, which is a big network of schools. And that started in Austin, actually. There's a, Austin is a really innovative place in terms of education, which is why I think it's great that UATX is based in Austin. Because yeah. it's, for the past 20 or 30 years, it's been a hub for innovation in education at all the different levels for grade schools, too. Um, so, yeah, I was really into it. And at the time, I was already pretty libertarian. And I remember the first time I visited a Montessori school and I was so shocked to see the children being able to self-organize and to decide each child decided what they wanted to work on and there were children uh, who were sitting down on the floor working in groups on some math like problems and other children were reading a book somewhere else and another child was maybe standing up or preparing lunch for everyone and I could, you couldn't even see the teacher, and it was so quiet and so orderly. And I thought, wow, if if children can do it, why can't we self-organize like this without necessarily having an authority figure telling everyone what to do? So that was really uh, shocking to me. For those who don't know anything about Montessori, can you give us a brief one-minute summary of what it is, mm-hmm. where it came so, from? Yeah, so Montessori education started in Italy with this woman called Maria Montessori, and she was actually the first doctor to graduate from from school in Italy and she was given she I don't know why I don't remember why she was giving these children who were the kids of some construction workers 
from a hospital near where she was studying and she had to take care of them and she decided to educate them but these kids were known for being stupid or or not capable of of much thinking and they had flunked at different schools or they hadn't had luck at regular schools and so she started to notice that she would give the children work as she calls it or or toy not not really they look like toys but it's work or materials that they can work with and, and learn stuff like for example uh i don't know if you've ever seen that pink tower but it's a pink tower that ch children build and the order in which you put the little cubes matters so if you don't put them in the right way before you're done you notice that you're you have some extra pieces and you need to start all over um and there's many other Montessori materials. So she started developing those. And then the children at the end of a year, they went back to their regular schools and took their exams. And they all passed the exams and got better grades than the other children who were their classmates before. So that's how she started getting attention uh, because people were like, oh, we didn't think these children could learn. And now they're better than the other ones. <laughs> I mean, at least academically, <laughs> better than the other ones. <laughs> And so, yeah, people started to look into what she was doing and she became some public figure in terms of education, touring the world and talking about this method that she developed for for how children children learn. But in a Montessori classroom, uh, children have a lot of choice about what to do and when to do it. And yeah, it's it's really cool to see. Uh, some of you may know this from my other podcast. My mum was a kindergarten teacher and she did a bunch of work in Montessori and Reggio Emilia, I think, is the other North Italian school of thought. Um, a lot of people really like it. My question always on it was, if this was such an effective teaching technique, why shouldn't we see sort of like Northern Italy as like an intellectual and technological hub and right. that hasn't been true for 500 years i mean That's it was true, true you know in the renaissance period um, yeah but that it was always a, it was always a question i sort of wondered about i mean i know a lot of people who go through it and have come out the other end and are not serial killers uh, which is always a good sign um but i it's it's my mind remains open to be convinced whether it's a, uh, the best way, but I think maybe potentially in the world of educating something as complex as a child, there are so, so many variables attached that you just can't lay it on, on one feed. Right. I think that there's no one size fits all for education. And that's why I believe there should be a lot of experimentation. There's a lot of room for entrepreneurship in terms of education. Uh, but I really do like the Montessori method. And I, I don't think it's as popular, really, especially in Italy nowadays. If you go to Italy, it's hard to find a Montessori school almost. Oh, really? Uh, it's, more, it's more popular in the U.S. for sure. And it became popular again about 40 years ago uh, yeah. in charter schools and in other schools in, in America. And there's... Maria Montessori had a son called Mario, and he, I think, popularized it even more. Yeah. But in Italy, it's not as popular. And I think part of it is because it's it's hard to get the training and the materials are a little bit uh, quite expensive, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's easier and cheaper to educate people in the traditional way, I think. 
let's dig dig into into education a little bit more because it's an area that I find very interesting, and I'm not alone because when people vote, I mean, people who care about public policy, unless you're like 15 or you're very wealthy, things like foreign policy and a thing like they don't really matter. What really like when I think of like the big like cabinet portfolios, it's the economy, healthcare, education. People care that they have a job. People care about their kids' education. People care about healthcare. Let's explore the first and the last one and focus on education. We, there is so, as I said, my mum was a teacher and a lot of people have very strong opinions on education that they probably are very weakly formed because we've all sat in the classroom before and therefore we all feel like we know what works and what doesn't. How about you tell us some of the things that definitely work when it comes to education that we know for a fact and some of the things that are still sort of brought up, which we know don't work. Don't work for what and for whom? Well, good question. Hmm. I mean, just the bit, I read the, uh, many of us, our listeners are Barry Weiss fans and she recently did a series on the number of students in the United States who cannot read. I right. think that uh, any sane person could come to the conclusion that that's a poor outcome. I think it's around 40% of children in the fifth grade cannot read. It's a lot higher than you'd think. It's crazy. And I think this whole policy of the no child left behind really is like every child left behind instead of no child left behind. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a really bad outcome. I, one of my professors in college, he had a PhD in economics, so he eventually clearly learned how to read really well. But he learned how to read when he was 17 years old. And that's because he went to this Waldorf school Actually, I think he even went to a traditional school, okay. but he went to school in, he grew up in England, and at the time, people, the professors couldn't flunk the students, so he would just go, the teachers knew he, he didn't know how to read, but they couldn't flunk him, so he just kept advancing and memorizing stuff when necessary, yeah. and moving from one grade to another without even knowing how to read or write, so... I, yeah, I was thinking about Waldorf because I know about other cases of people there who learn how to read when they're 15. But I think that's such a disservice considering how much children are capable of learning. It's such a disservice to them not to teach them or allow them to learn things like reading when they're young. It's, I mean, I'm just having a look at some of the uh, data here. Um, here we go. Some of the ones that really jump out at me, um, three out of four people on welfare in the United States cannot read. 20% of Americans read below the level needed to earn a living wage. Um, here are some other ones, which, and this is when it comes down to kids. 40% of students across the nation cannot read at a basic level. And when you include, when you just measure for low income, fourth grade students, that goes to 70%. Um, so it seems that there is a huge, a, you know, I, like, it seems to me that read something like being able to read a fundamental skill is something that's almost going backwards as well. Um, I mean, you work in, you work in education, like how, like, how could that possibly be the case? 
I don't know, but I think it's such a disservice given how children are so so capable of learning. It's I think it's such a disservice really from <laughs> from somebody, from the parents, from society, I don't know, but um, yeah, but I would say that one of the main goals of education should be for people to become independent and for no. people to learn how to read, write the basic stuff, reading, writing, math, at least those things I think everyone has to learn. Um, I would say many, maybe many of the other things are optional, maybe history is optional. I, I mean, personally, not for me, but I know that not everyone likes biology or chemistry or yeah. other things, but definitely reading, writing, and math is are, are important skills that people should, everyone should learn. It's like the minimum thing. Uh, yeah, you said you were interested in education and in, in, within, the, but one, the other, you also dropped the other E word, entrepreneurship. Um, it's, it's such a difficult area to innovate in. Um, and I, I would love to hear some of the examples that you know of, of entrepreneurship really being able to have an impact on education, both at like the young level and higher education and some of the things that you are, you like, because it seems to be like a lot of, a lot of hocus pocus in this space. Right. Um, you know, anywhere from people taking like pills to make you smarter all the way down <laughs> to, you know, people thinking that they, they just need to download one new app onto their phone to improve their like, Brain. I think we're friends on Duolingo. <laughs> yeah, we are friends on Duolingo. Um, you, should, you should start to learn Spanish, though. I should learn to learn Spanish. After my experience at Coachella, when I was watching Bad Buddy perform, I realized that... Uh, I was How was that? Good. It was good. He's... Um, <laughs> let's talk about Coachella. Coachella, as some of you may know, I've just got back from California. Um, Sorry, that's thunderstorm. Oh, goodness gracious. For life in the world, tropics, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, life on the equator. Uh, no, you don't even need the Yeah, I mean, you're in the, you're in the tropics, aren't you? Yes, it's, pretty, the, uh, it's pretty tropical here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so some of you may uh, have heard that I have just got back from Coachella, one of the great American institutions, um, out of the Mojave, which is a fabulous part of the world. I got to see the Joshua trees, or as my wife calls them, the Dr. Seuss trees, because yes. they kind of do look like they, you know, something out of a Lorax. Um, I didn't see a Lorax. Apparently, uh, they're hard to hard to come by, um, unless you're uh, taking acid. Um, but what did I think of Coachella? Well, first off, I, who was, who did I, who did I like? I went to see Bad Bunny on Friday. Uh, awesome. He has become he a, did he bring an extra band? Some other Spanish-speaking band? I, I was so far back, it was hard to tell. Um, okay. But possibly. He was quite good. Uh, he, what, maybe you can explain this to me. I've been to Latin America before. I spent a bit of time in Colombia when I was younger. Um, and there's, music's a huge part of Latin life. Huge yes. part. Everyone knows the songs and everyone knows how to dance. Like, and you probably um, are shocked and appalled when you come to the West and see how poor the average person dances, um, right. which isn't like the bump and grind. Um, and so what, 
what is Bad Bunny doing that has separated him from the rest? Like, why is he so popular and everyone else isn't? Everyone else seems popular to me. At least all the reggaeton singers here, they're so famous. But uh, yeah. not all of them, but many of them. But Bad Bunny... But he's broken a, through. It's such a phenomenon, though. I'm sure people are listening to him elsewhere because last year or two years ago, he was the number one artist on Spotify. Yeah. And like worldwide. And last year he was a second after Drake. But I was thinking that's fake. That's like fake news. Really. If you dig deeper, I'm pretty sure he's more popular than Drake because a lot of people here don't use Spotify and there's, they, they're still like pirating songs here. Okay. So I'm sure. <laughs> if people were actually paying for Spotify, then Bad Bunny would probably be the number one. But I don't know, really. I don't know why he became so famous. And when I was in high school, reggaeton was sort of popular. And then when I went to college, people were listening to more like electronic music. Yeah. And then with Bad Bunny and other artists, uh, reggaeton became a thing again. And everyone loves it. I don't know. Well, older people don't, but younger people love Love Bad Bunny. Yeah. It was such a cultural experience because, like, I, I, as we all know, like, I live in Colorado, which is uh, not famed for its cultural diversity. Um, and um, so, coming, going there, I was just like, there is so much, like, Latin influence on, like, music, food. Um, and I was sitting there, I was like, yeah, you're right. I need to get onto the Duolingo and learn Spanish because I was the only person in the crowd that didn't know all the words. And uh, I was like, sitting there, and I was like, it's a it it's it's an experience and um what i want to sort of see more of yes i went to i went to a bad bunny concert in december and i remember and then i went to spain for like a month and i remember thinking because when i was growing up since you were asking about that i was always looking at the disney movies and reading all the books that i'm sure people were reading in america too and so i always identify and I went to an American school, so I learned about U.S. history, I would say, even more than I studied Guatemalan history when I was in yeah. uh, middle school or high school. But uh, I always felt more identified with, oh, you know, the founding fathers and the Constitution, and I always loved that and felt American in a way. But then when I was at this Bad Bunny concert, I was like, there's no way. I'm Latin. I'm a Latina. Yeah. <laughs> I was so sure. And, yeah, there's some differences for sure. <laughs> but yeah it was so much fun the concert is great it's a he's a great showman i don't know if he did that thing where he like flies around in this palm tree floating palm tree across the stadium he didn't do that uh, he but, does I that what, <laughs> but he was good but he i think he my favorite favorite group to perform at coachella was a group called blackpink which is a korean all girls pop group and i'm not really a pop guy i'm not really a i'm definitely not a k-pop guy but these girls turned it on they had such an impressive show um and i have been listening to their songs like ever since i'm like a fan um and i i was thinking about why i i think the songs are very catchy like i'm sort of like humming along to them while they're playing as though like I already know the words. Um, but I think on top, the, the thing that really set them apart was 
they really put in a shift. Like they really put everything out there. Um, and I guess that's possibly what happens when you're like very, still very early in your career. And like, this is like the big one. Whereas if you go to see Elson John play, he's like, oh, this is good. But like, <laughs> it's, it's not as good as 1978 back at Wembley sort of thing. So, um, so that, that they were, um, they were, they were really great as well. And, um, if anyone is thinking of going to coach you, I would recommend it, but bring sunscreen and bring a canopy because it gets very, very, very hot in the Mojave. Uh, okay. Let's go. So that was, um, let's go, uh, let's go back. So you, you've been spending a little bit of time. I mean, why don't we talk it, jump to the modern day. What are you spending your time doing? Carmen, um, and what do you hope to be doing in the next couple of years? So I do a lot of co-creation sessions at the moment yep. at, at the university. And those are, it, they started actually with somebody, the, the former president of, of UFM, he would say that whenever mm. you go to a conference, you have one smart person lecturing lots of Mars, smart people who are just sitting down waiting for the coffee break to start because it's during the coffee break where they can talk about ideas, build projects and work together or talk about things that are interesting, interesting to them. Um, so why not flipping, why not flipping conferences so that people can actually work on productive projects or helping each other or where they can have dialogues about questions that matter to them or, or ideas that are, are important to them. So I do a lot of those co-creation sessions and then I do a lot of teacher trainings too where uh, I don't focus as, at all in the content that they teach but more about the process. So whether that's project-based learning or Socratic dialogue or team-based learning, anything that's not necessarily lecture-based and even for lecture-based lecture classes, organizing conferences around yeah, that's what I do mostly. And enjoying it? And I am enjoying it, and I have news. I've also started working for UATX now. Oh, <laughs> yes. congratulations. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, you should have told me earlier. We could have had some big, like, <laughs> yes. the hype train. Congratulations. Yes. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. So uh, I'll be working with the Polaris Project, and oh. the Polaris Project is... The, the thing that the students will be working on since their first year of college, where it can be a research, a research let's say they want to write a paper about something or they have a question that they want to answer, or it can be a business that they want to start. So it's a project of their choice and helping them figure out like their next great adventure in life as well, or experiment with doing different things and discovering what their true calling or passion is or discovering some of their callings or passions and trying to build something and putting it out in the world. So I'm excited. I'm really excited about that too. Well, I'm very excited about that as well. Congratulations. Thank you. Brilliant. Well, would you like to um, ask a question of yourself or ask a question of me before we dive into the lightning round? No, what's that? So the lightning, oh, it shows how much you listen to. Yeah. So we, uh, we finished the I podcast. did, but not, not all of them, not, not oh, until the end. To be fair, to be fair. <laughs> so <laughs> hi, hi, if you listen all the way down to here, hello. This is the bonus episode. So, hi, so, hi, mom. 
Yeah, this is the good no, it's not yeah, all goes wild. Um, so I said to him, just ask some rapid fire questions and I'll just start going through them and uh, feel free to answer them as, as you feel fit. Um, we'll go from the start. What is one book that has impacted your life? Hmm. My first libertarian book ever was Atlas Shrugged. And yep. I thought I was a socialist. And when I read Atlas Shrugged, I remember thinking, wow, I actually really like this book. And I actually, I think I believe in this. So it really sparked my curiosity. I don't know. I wouldn't say it's the best book I've read, but it definitely had a big impact on me because it introduced me to a new world of ideas that I had never explored before. Why are there so many more men in libertarian circles than women? Hmm. There's more men everywhere, pretty much. <laughs> I don't know. What are they? Why? Actually, I think it's because men are usually more prone to intellectual ideas or more likely to think about economics or more interested in economics or in politics than women. Mm. Um, and somebody once told me, I don't know if this is true, but supposedly when women started voting in America, supposedly the country became more socialist. I mean... I would have to read this person's, this is an academic, this person's non-PC research, but, which is all right. I don't, I don't just want PC research. It's the best stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, supposedly because women are more sensitive and uh, they were like, oh, but what about the poor? And what about, let's give them universal basic income or whatever. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think guys necessarily think about those things as much, although they, they do too. So. Yeah, I don't know why. Thanks, Carolyn. We'll just enjoy getting demonetized. Uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, what is a skill you wish you had but don't? Playing the piano. Why? I really like the piano, and I studied it for a while when I was a kid, and I gave it up, and I, I would love to learn that. What is your most underrated personal quality? Mm. I think I'm very curious and I usually ask a lot of questions whenever I'm meeting people. I don't know that that's underrated though. What's, I don't know about one that's underrated. Hmm. I'm What's nice. The, no, you are a nice person. <laughs> What's the biggest difference between your personality when you go from English to Spanish? Huh? I think I'm more assertive in English and in Spanish I'm sweeter for sure. Yeah. Interesting. There's a big difference. I mean, not it's not like I'm a different person, but I think because English has always been my academic language. Yeah. I and I always read in English. I actually find it hard. It's hard for me to read in Spanish. Um, so for anything intellectual, I would say English, and for Spanish, is more like I'm, yeah, less assertive and nicer. Um, if you could have a dinner with any historical figure, who would it be and why? One of the classics. Hmm. I always say Arthur Kessler, and he's a, one of my favorite authors. He was a Jewish guy who survived the Holocaust and ended up killing himself afterwards, which is a pity because he survived and he was such a great thinker. But he also used to be a socialist and became a... Not a libertarian, but a classical liberal. And um, hmm. yeah, he just lived a very interesting life. He lived in a kibbutz and he was 
uh, in under Franco's regime and prison for a while when he was a communist, like the story of the Sandinistas, you were saying he went to Spain and fight to fight. And then, um, yeah, he he wrote a really good no novel called Darkness at Noon. I think that's the most famous one. Just seems like an interesting person, I would say, Arthur Kessler. I don't know much about him, but if he's got any books that you would recommend to people listening? Darkness at Noon, I really like. And then his autobiography is really good, too. Okay, brilliant. Um, what is your favorite failure? Hmm. My favorite failure. I feel like I've had, I have some recent ones, but they're kind of funny. I don't know if those are good. Let me think of a more profound one. I can just think of this really dumb failure that happened to me a few months ago when I was supposed to leave from the Albuquerque airport to Houston and then back to Guatemala. And I got there on time for my flight but I thought my flight was leaving later that day. So I just was walking around and I thought, oh, why did I get here so early? And then I went to the counter and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm ready to check in. And they were like, oh, this is not the flight to Houston. You missed your flight. So yeah, I was just distracted, which happens to me every now and then. <laughs> happens to the most, to all of us. Um, so that's not, it's not a profound failure. I just thought it was like, I can't believe I really thought my flight left at four, let's say, and it really left that day. Well, I mean, missing flight seems to be a UATX tradition after a... Uh, who missed their flight? Andrew. Uh, the, uh, the, burger, the Burger King. Oh, for uh, a hamburger. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed it, Andrew, and I hope you're listening. Um, in your opinion, what is the key to happiness? I think we all have different buckets that we need to fill and make sure that we're... Uh, nurturing so whether that's sport and fitness being one of them spirituality or religion being another one work health family friends making sure you do a little bit of or a lot of the things that are, are important to you i think that's the key to happiness how's it going for you arthur brooks has great advice on that he does i'm always recommending his work I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying some of the stuff as well. Um, we've got only got a few more to go. Uh, what is one thing you believe in that most people would disagree with? Can it either be something around being a libertarian hmm. where it's not really being a conservative or like, it's not like I'm a Republican and it's so whenever I'm around conservatives, like, for instance, on the issues around gay marriage or things like that, I'm like, why should the government dictate to people who they can marry or give them benefits if they're married or not? Mm. And on the other side, it's on the like liberal side, then there's a lot of stuff I don't agree with. And I'm like, yeah, I like free markets, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't like big taxation either. Yeah. So maybe uh, was, that around education, anything that's alternative education too. Was the sexual revolution a mistake? Was it a mistake? Yeah. 
Mm, probably. 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 How so? I think it replaced many traditional values that people had. This is my conservative side, okay? Yeah, this is the side we want to hear. And those yeah. those values could have been replaced by, by something else. Maybe they didn't have to be religion, but I don't think they were replaced necessarily replaced by other values, but just by nothing. So it's like this void of certain values that I think are necessary necessary even for people's happiness. But it's interesting. I don't think New Request is good either. I was just in Japan and I think the society, the Japanese society in general is highly repressed in many, in many ways, I would say, including sexually. And I don't think that's good. And you can see that they have all these weird things that they like. And I think it's because they're so repressed in some ways. They do. I have been to Japan. It is a, it's a I recommend it to anyone to visit. It's a fabulous place. Um, great food. But they are facing down the, facing down the prospect of, civilizational collapse right. and essentially running out of people um, and and they have zero end game strategy of how to figure that out. Um, so in a hundred years, it, we, we don't know what's going to actually uh, kick off from there. Um, but great, great, great place to visit. I'll tell you what. Um, and I guess we'll finish off with the final question. Uh, what's something that you've always wanted to try, but haven't had the chance to yet? I want to live in Austin. I did live in Austin for a while before, though, but I want to live in Austin again. <laughs> well, so uh, hopefully that will be happening soon. Fingers uh, crossed. Carmen Rodriguez, it's been great chatting to you. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on education, your thoughts on libertarianism, and your thoughts on, on a huge range of issues. Uh, I really appreciate getting to know you more, and obviously we can, we'll see you in Dallas. Very much yes. looking forward to it. Me too. Thank you, Harry. Thank you very much, Carmen. Bye. Ciao.